Just really quickly, um, I love a good story, and I think all of you know that I love a good story. I love to tell a good story. I love to be entertained by a good story. I love when those stories jump out and get you. Uh, if you ever saw that, that movie, which I'm not endorsing by any means, that Sixth Sense, I actually just love the way it was put together. The rest of the movie was creepy and scary, and I don't like that sort of stuff, but I like the way it was put together. I just enjoy that sort of stuff. So I like a good story, and like any good story, I, I, I know when it's going to be a good story because it just kind of pulls me in. It wraps me in. Charles Dickinson's Tale of Two Cities starts off with, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And, and, and if you've ever read that story, you, you know the, the, the rest of that just opening paragraph just kind of pulls you in, and it kind of feels a little bit like today's world. There was time of darkness and a time of light and, and goodness and all those sort of things, too. 
another one that, that some of you, if you're literature people at all, or you've read some of these, one of the great American novels, I, I think, uh, as far as just its, it, its impact, was, was uh, The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. And, and it starts off, it says, if you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was all like. Now, I don't know what it is about those lines, those few lines that kind of usher me in and welcome me in, but it just tells me that whatever comes after this is going to be just an incredible story. And, and it grabs me because I actually had a pretty good childhood, but it was a, it was a challenging childhood in a lot of ways. Some of you know I, I moved around a lot as a kid, and, and, and there's some pluses and minuses to that, but I did 13 schools before I finished the ninth grade. And, and that, that created being a new kid a whole lot. I got beat up a couple of times. When I was in California, I was called one of those stupid Texans I don't know how many times. We're turning the tables now as they're coming here to Texas now, so I get to, I get to give that back, okay? Because I know how the story's ending, right? But I just love a good story. I just love the way, I mean, some of you, this may actually be some of your favorite stories here. Um, there, was, there was these movies that were made. Uh, the first one actually was made before I was born here. But, but one of my favorite beginnings to a story is a long time ago in a galaxy far away. I mean, you just know that whatever comes after that is going to be a, a cinema t- t- masterpiece, right? But then the rest of the stories, they just pull you right in until, of course, they bring Jar Jar into the picture, and it just runs the rest of the story, right? just runs it. I was fine with 4, 5, and 6, 7, 8, and 9, but 1, 2, and 3, <sighs> I mean, truly the middle of the story was the best beginning, was it not? was the best beginning, and for some people who, who don't read a whole lot, if you just flip all the way to the back, you know how the story ends and you decide whether you should watch it or not. Now, I hate when television does that, where they start off with this, this scene, but it just sucks me right in, and then all of a sudden it goes 72 hours earlier, and they bring you back to how they got to that point. And if they didn't really do a good job in the first couple of minutes, I'm thinking, I don't really want to watch the rest of this. I don't care how you got here. I want to know what happens next. Our, our entire lives, we look at a whole lot of different references to what went on in the past. We're trying to figure out how do we live in the present. And then there's, there's, there's a, a whole mix of emotions regarding the future. Am I prepared for it? What's it going to look like? I mean, our anxiety actually uh, kind of piggybacks with our hope because hope is always future-focused. And, and our anxiety kind of piggybacks on that hope because we're not sure what our future is going to look like. And so because we're not sure what our future is going to look like, we're not sure if we're prepared for our future or not. And so when we start thinking about our future uh, in our present, we get all anxious about it. And it just really kind of messes it up. And most of the time, that's because we fail to go back to our past and realize that if we would look back at the past, we wouldn't make the, the same present mistakes that we did in the past, and they wouldn't ruin our future. Now, are you all with me so far? Because I'm pretty much in one of those uh, uh, back-to-the-future time travel things, okay? But perhaps probably one of the greatest stories that I think we can all get our minds around, at least in this room and and online for our viewers that are watching today, is the greatest story out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have got to know that whatever comes after those words, the very words of God, there is some amazing stuff that's going to happen. Angelo mentioned it earlier when we went through the story years ago. There were two primary lines in the story. There was the upper story of God and the lower story of man and how the two were, were engaging with one another and that it was always God's plan that he would be with us, his greatest creation. And somehow, in a matter of just, we don't know how long, but in a matter of probably a couple of days, maybe a couple of months, who knows, because a year is like a thousand days to the Lord. Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. She gave it to Adam. He ate of it too. And they had to get out of the garden. The story shifted but it didn't change because it was always God's plan to be with his creation. 
He even told her on that day that one day your offspring will rise up and his heel will crush the head of the one who was out to get you. God says that although the story began in the beginning with you with me here in the garden, it's going to continue on and the very end of the story is going to be with us together again, at least with those who choose me. And then all the rest of the things in between the, the in the beginning and amen that happens at the end of Revelation, we call that life. What's the story of your life? What's the story of your life in relation to your creator? What is the story that you're looking for? For the past several weeks, we've been memorizing Psalm chapter 51, verse 10. And I love to hear you read that out loud. And as we read that this morning, as we put that to memory, this has been my prayer for us as a church this year, as we've gone the last couple of weeks and what it will be for the, for the rest, because I think somewhere be- between in the beginning and amen, we need to get back to this verse in Psalm 51.10. So read that with me this morning. Create in me oh, a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. See, the ideal of creating a new heart within us says that the whatever heart we have, God's going to have to put something new in there because the old one's not getting it done. And then the renewing of our spirit just says, God, somewhere along the way I lost my way. And I, I quenched my spirit but my spirit needs more of your spirit. And so would you renew in me the right spirit, God? Because I'm having a really hard time these days. I'm having difficulty understanding the world we live in. I'm having difficulty understanding the life that I have. I'm having difficulty watching people make bad decisions and justifying them because it fits into their lifestyle. I'm having difficulty, Lord. My spirit aches and hurts. And so if you would create in me the, uh, the new heart, the clean heart, God, would you also give me the right spirit to understand what's making me so nauseous? Not just physically, but spiritually nauseous. I don't know about you, friends, but I'm nauseated about the present. But I have to take ownership for those decisions in the present that I am making that brings on that nausea. So create in me a clean heart, God. Renew in me a right spirit. Because I want to know how the story ends. If in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and everything was right, and in a matter of one bad decision, God had to kill an animal and cover them with with its blood and, and, and wash away that sin for the moment, but kick them out of the garden and tell them by the sweat of their face they would labor forever and ever. And then we see all of the rest of humanity and history and mankind just seemingly fall apart. And I don't know about you, but some days I just wonder, God, how much longer of this are you going to deal with? But if I'm really honest about that statement, I make that regarding everybody else's sin and not my own. That's why I like having some of you around. You're worse sinners than I am. I feel good about what I do. (laughs) If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd love for you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. I will confess this morning, I, I stay away from the book of Revelation in the pulpit as often as I possibly can. And one of the many reasons by which I do that is because I am personally intimidated by the book. And secondly, I have a nausea from seminary because of the book of Revelation. Because somewhere a group of, of spiritual eggheads set together and adamantly argue about how things really are going to be, and not a one of them has a clue. Now that's not to say God doesn't have a plan, and that's not to say God doesn't want to reveal to us what his plan is. 
But that is to say that wherever conjecture lists, you can usually find a whole group of people following that conjecture. And so this morning, it's not my goal to, to steer you one way or the other in regards to the book of Revelation, but I do want to read passages out of here. I want to share with you this morning what I have studied of just full context. I, I read a lot of different guys' sermons on this, this passage because it's difficult to wrestle with and to understand. But here's what I do understand about the book of Revelation is that, that John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was in his 80s or 90s. He had been beaten, whipped, left for dead, boiled in oil, and was on a, a prison colony island when God appeared to him and gave him this vision, and he told him to write these things down. And, and at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, uh, he writes uh, letters to seven churches, and in each of those churches, he tells them about who they are and how they've disappointed him and how they've broken his heart and what he's going to do. And he reminds him at the end of every one of these letters, if those who conquer shall see the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's just a good word in and of itself, that for those who stay on the right path, who, who take heed to the warnings of the letter of the message that God has left behind for us from the past and the present, that the future, if we will but conquer that, trusting God and following him, good things will come for us. But yet still, we have this life that we're wrestling with and dealing with. And so in Revelation chapter 21, the first eight verses, I want to read that together this morning. I want to talk about a couple of pieces of this. And so let's read that. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have it in your Bible, but I, I highly recommend you, you find it because there's some great pieces in here. This is John writing, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from them the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray together. Father, these words are, are heavy. And so, Lord, as we kind of work through some of these passages, God, I pray that we would understand the right context by which they were given to us. But, Lord, also the promise by which they were secured for us so that we might have them this morning. Lord, open up our, our minds and our hearts to understand what it is that you are saying from the past to us in the present and for the future. Lord, we thank you that you alone are making all things new. And so, Lord, with that, we just ask that as we 
as we venture through the rest of this morning, that you would indeed make all new created hearts in us and renew the right spirit within us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the pastors I read uh, was a guy named uh, Bryce Morgan. I don't, I don't know who he is, but I love the way he kind of broke down this, this passage of Scripture. And he, he, he used a lot of alliteration, which is sometimes really easy to see. But I want to put something up on the screen to kind of help you understand that, that what this passage is telling us is that there are new things coming. And there's only one who makes these new things. And if you're like me... Many of us are looking at our, our present or our old life and just saying, I want something new. Now, now, I won't get too deep into the conversation of a new normal because like you, uh, many of you at least, I'm not real satisfied with that term new normal. But I do have to acknowledge on some level that we are in a new normal, but we're in a new normal every time something changes. And if we know anything about life, that two things are constant. Change is one of those things that is always constant, and God is still the creator of all things. And if we can't get to those two realities, it does not matter about anything new that's coming if we're still busy trying to push new into the old ways. This is actually a generational conversation that happens between the older generation and the new generation because the old generation shakes their head at the new people just going, why are you trying to make the, the, the wheel square again? And the, the new generation is looking at the old generation going, why are we even using wheels? Can't we hovercraft anymore, right? And we go through these things as we age and we always look back at the past generation or at the one in front of us and we seem to mock and make fun and ridicule and poke fun and all those things and we call it culture and all that stuff too, right? But here's the promise that we have from God and I love that he opens this up is that he is indeed a God who creates. Because it says to us, not only is it the acknowledgement that God had created the heavens and the earth just as he did at the very beginning, but he also is creating a new heaven for us. And he is doing so just as Christ had said I'm going to my father's place where there are many mansions. And I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. If it were not true, I would not tell you. And so I believe that when Christ ascended, after he told the disciples that he was going to be at the right hand of the Father, that he wasn't just going up there and sitting on the throne and hanging out, that he was busy working, preparing a place for me. And if you read the rest of Revelation, what you'll see is this new heaven and this new earth is, is so big and so vast. It's like 1,500 miles cubed. There are 12 gates that have all kinds of names and just beauty to it. You should read the rest of Revelation to kind of tell you a little bit about that. But this, this creator God is creating new things, and one of the first things we see is that he is a God who creates. Now, what he does not create is confusion. What he does not create is, is, is anxiety and fear and everything else from how we look at it from the world's point of view. What he creates for us is the promise that he gave a long, long time ago. And I really think one of the great challenges we have, especially in the book of Revelation, and with a lot of other things that we look at when it comes to God's word, is that we look at this as it may be some sort of suggestion or ideal or something written in pencil, but instead it was absolutely written in blood when God says that I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth. He's got a citizenship prepared for that new heaven and new earth. Are you going to be there? Because many people will cry out, Lord, Lord, and on that day he will say, depart from me, I do not know you. I do not know you. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Whatever their ideal of that is, and God says, I'm laying it out for you right now. It's a new heaven and a new earth. He's also the God who communes with his people. And I think this is perhaps probably one of the, the greatest things, the most heartbreaking things, and maybe perhaps one of the most frightening things for each and every one of us is the misunderstanding that God wants to be with us always. 
Now, there's a problem with that. If you were entrenched in your sin, if you were holding on to your sin as if it's, if it's, if it's just your best friend in the entire world, there's not a lot of room for God to be with you if you're so busy embracing your sin in every open place of your life and every closed place where nobody else sees that. God does. He's the God who wants to be with us. As he says in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God, we sometimes like to to separate him and keep him in heaven far away, almost as if we cannot achieve or aspire to get there because the holiness of God is so far out of our concept because we know we're just lowly sinners and we're in the midst of just celebrating our sin that we just say, well, I'm just a sinner just like everybody else and I can't be in God's presence. But what you're missing is, is that God made a promise and he says, I want to be with my people or I wouldn't have made that garden to begin with and I wouldn't have let Adam and Eve be in there with me and I wouldn't have walked around with them in their presence and they wouldn't wouldn't have, have had to kick out after they had sin i want to be with my people i don't know about you but have you ever longed to be with somebody you haven't been with in a long time i mean really missed somebody i love the the the, the fact that i got to travel and to go places and to to see some amazing people on the other side of the planet and to share god's word but you know who i really miss was my wife I longed to see her again. She knew what I was doing. She knew where I was. She supported me in everything that I did. And I didn't feel any guilt or or any remorse about that. But I missed her. Now that my kids are off in college, I miss them. I long to be with them. Can you just imagine what it's like for your creator to say, I long to be with you, and you keep rejecting me? That this this holy, all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God just says, you're it. You are the apple of my eye, my prize position. I created you above the angels. I'd send my son to die for you. That's how much I want to be with you. Friends, that's not just an idea or a theory or a possibility. It is the absolute promise of God that his dwelling place is with man. And he is doing everything and has from the beginning. Not to get him back to us, but get us back to him. It's not that God's running away from us. His holiness stops him from being in the full presence of sin. But the blood of his son covers that up and puts that away for us. And so when I pray, I will often pray very, very, very openly. God, I approach you, the throne of glory, with all righteousness and holiness in your name and with boldness and expectation because of what Jesus did for me. Stop being afraid of God. Oh, he's bigger than I am. Yes, he is. Oh, if you knew half of what I do, he knows all of what you do. He knows what you're going to do. Oh, why would God want to be with me? Stop asking why he would and start figuring out how to make that happen. He's got that figured out for us. The God of, of, of new things also is the one who comforts us. He'll wipe away every tear. There'll be no sickness, no sorrow. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't it sound good to know that when I'm in the presence of my Holy Father forever and ever, that I don't worry about tripping over a rock or hurting somebody's feelings or having my feelings hurt either? 
that cancer that has taken so many of the people in my family that is, that is, that is riddling their bodies, that those all over the planet right now who are dying of COVID or HIV or the 600,000 babies whose lives will be taken in the United States this year because we've legalized abortion, that none of that will exist anymore. Until that day, I hope we ball our eyes out because when I'm in heaven, all I'm going to be doing is raising my hand. There was a song written, some of you know, back in the 70s. No more crying there. We're going to see the king. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. I love that song. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the king. The sad reality is that many people will only stand before him at a distance. And they will be judged. And they will be cast into the lake of fire by which he also described in the same passage. And we cannot be afraid of that. Because new things come from a God who comforts and he wants to comfort us, but we have to come to him boldly. New things come from a God who communicates absolute truth. And I love this passage here when he says that he is seated on the throne. He says, behold, I am making all things new. And that, that phrase, behold, I am making all things new, is this kind of weird uh, and I'm not an English person, but it, it is kind of this, this weird uh, tense that's in there because it, it's this, this present but also future. And so while we're looking for God to make all things new for us in the future, we have to understand he's doing that right now. And in the past, he also said that, that I am making things new for you and there will be a new way for you to be in my presence forever and his name will be Jesus and there will be no other new ways for that because I'm making all things new, but I'm not making a different path for everybody. I'm making but one the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father except by Him. And so when He communicates this, this absolute truth to us, it is the thing that people don't understand because we, we're so busy wanting things done right now our way in a, in a manageable chunks of information that I can wrap my mind around. Why are you so busy trying to figure out a God who knows more about you than you do about yourself instead of just trusting Him who has never lied to you? He's never lied to us. And so if God says that I'm making all things new and I'm preparing a place for you, be okay with that. I know that is, that is painfully simplistic. Be okay with that. Don't put your list on there. Okay, God, but I need these following circumstances filled out for me so that I can make this happen. New things come from a God who concludes. And I, I love this piece of the passage too. And he says, it is done. And when I hear him say, it is done, it's almost as if I can just see Jesus who's, who's nailed to the cross, who looks out and with a loud voice cries out, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. It is done should scare some of you people to death. Just think about that for a second. So many people think if I lived a good life, if I did nice things, if, I, if my deeds and my actions were, were, were higher than my misdeeds and my poor actions, then perhaps, perhaps just maybe God will look upon those things and he'll balance those things out. But I got news for you that God is in a constant state of filling out the ledger. And he's looking at those things and all things in heaven and earth that have been done. He will judge all those things. He will begin with his people first, and then he will go to the rest of creation. But I got news for you. When he says it is done, it is done. 
when Jesus says it is finished, what he was saying is that I have given the final sacrifice so that all man can be reconciled back to their creator, so that the dwelling place of God can be with man again if they will but accept that. And when Jesus says, when, when, when God says here that it is done, he's saying there are no more opportunities. That there's a finality for those who have lost their lives and will spend forever outside of the dwelling place of God. You can think about a lot of things when we talk about hell and the fire and the brimstone and the lake and the gnashing of teeth and the wailing and the people crying. You can think about all those things about hell, but I'm going to tell you something. I think one of the most frightening things about hell is simply this. God will not be there. We will be outside of the presence of a holy God who wants to dwell with us if we're in hell. And most people don't look at that as if that's a scary or a bad deal because they don't understand this God whom we serve. They want him to be like they want him to be, not who he says he is. New things come from a God who covers. <laughs> Perhaps one of the most controversial stories in all of Scripture is John chapter 4 when Jesus is at the, at the well with this woman who is a prostitute and he he has this conversation with her about give him something to drink, and if you only knew who I was, you'd be asking me for something to drink, he says to her. And I would give you water that would swell up with springs of life. And they go back and forth, and later on his, his disciples come, and this lady, she figures out, and she says something that I just think is absolutely amazing. After she realizes that this is Jesus, the son of the living God, she runs back into town, and she says, come and see a man who told me everything about me. <laughs> Come see somebody I've never met before who knows me better than I know myself. In verse 6 of this, and he said, It is done on the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Jesus says, I got this covered. I got this covered. I think some of us really need a God who covers everything. We're busy trying to buy our way in. New things come from a God who calls, and this is where I really want to spend a couple of minutes this morning. If you'll put Revelation chapter 21, 7 and 8 back on the board for me. I think sometimes we, 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 we read this story so futuristic, so impossibly, so intimidating because it's this, this fantasy, because it talks about dragons and a lady giving birth and crowns and seven heads and, and scrolls and thunderous clouds and rapture or no rapture depends on who you are and what you think about that and everybody gets into all these things and you go back to Daniel and Isaiah chapter 55 and 50, uh, 54 55 and you all, and you all oh I just got to know the Bible so well that I just don't understand Revelation so I'm just going to discount it as the possibility of being true does anybody fall in that category Let me tell you what I do know about the Bible, and it's been over and over and over and over and over again. You need to know that if you read the Bible, what you see over and over and over again is God continually calls to all mankind. He is often begging you to come back, pleading with you to return, asking you to but listen to his ways. Chapter 21, verse 7 and 8 says this, The only one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, 
and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. How can somebody die twice? (laughs) Folks, we are all going to taste the reality of life. But when Jesus says, I came not that you would have life, but you would have life abundant. John 3.16, the famous passage that we all know and understand, tells us that, 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 that God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. And the second death is a death of perishing. It, it is the, the death in the lake of fire. And I want you to understand, as you read this passage, there is no water left on the earth because it is boiled and burned up and gone. But go back with me for just a moment, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's, this, there's this, this, this picture in the Hebrew language of the earth being covered with water and the Spirit of God hovering over it. And it speaks almost as if God reached into the water and separated the waters and pulled them apart. And, and this is where the earth came out of. This is how the, the, the Hebrew language kind of describes that when he created the heavens and the earth. But now here we are at the very end in the, in the future to come. And God is saying that there's no water left. The only water is going to be inside the new heaven And it's going to be the spring of life that wells up. It's going to be that river that runs under the tree of life that blooms 12 times a year that's going to be full of fruit for us where there will be no more pain and no more sorrow. And he's saying, I am calling you to come to this perfect place. And I want you to come to this perfect place, but so many of you will not do that. And the word that I really want to focus on for just a moment is that word cowardly. Because if you look at that whole list in verse 8, he begins with the cowardly. He doesn't begin with the sexually immoral, the murderers, the liars, or anything else. He begins with those who have chosen to not stand in the name of Jesus. And we could get into some deep theological conversations about this, and that's not my desire today, but let me just push this on you for just a moment. When push comes to shove, we have a a tendency to revert, revert back to comfort, normal, old way, Lisa, every one of us. If we have a clean heart and renewed spirit and God is making all things new and he's creating me to be a new person, the old is gone, the new has come, if this is who God has, if he's put a new song in my mouth like we talked about last week out of Psalm 40, if if, if those things are new, then I've got to get the old out of the way and I have to replace them with the new so that when I am pressured, when the, 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 the tribulation comes, whatever the case may be, I'm not cowardly. I'm standing up for what I know to be true because God has called me to it and he says, I'm making all things new because I'm the one who creates. I'm the one who wants to be with my people. I'm the one who comforts and takes away pain and tears and sorrow and death. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm calling all of my creation back to me. Okay, Pastor, now that you've got us in this weird place in Revelation and we've talked about all these things, you're saying these are the things of the future. Okay, great. But I live in the present. All right, fair enough. Let me challenge you on that for a moment. Because I think sometimes we're in the present because we don't have a choice, but we're living in the past. Because sin and shame and sorrow still burdens us and those things are not from God. We should have a godly sorrow for the sins we create against him and break his heart 
But that sorrow should not rule our life in such a way that we don't live in the present for God so that when the pressure comes, we are not cowardly and denounce him. Because once we begin down the road of cowardice, we are liable to commit all kinds of sins, as is listed here in verse 8. God is saying, stand strong, stand true, stand up for me. Will it cost you? Yes, in this life, but not in the next. And that's where he's trying to call us to, okay? So if this is the vision of our future, then how do we live in the present? Because that's really the question we've got to figure out, right? John, you make this new heaven sound like a great place. I can't wait to get there. I really want to go. And after all, I'm a good person, so I probably will. Second Peter chapter 3. Verse 7 through 13. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to flip back a couple of pages there. Peter had something figured out here, and I, I just I'm I'm so impressed by what he knew. Because Peter more or less was in the present time, writing to the present people of his day as this letter would circulate about. And, and what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 is almost exactly what John would write down down the road, except there's more detail to it. And Peter has a different tense of the present, whereas John was writing in Revelation about the future. And he says this, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He's saying this world right here is temporary, and everything within it is temporary. And it's being stored up so it can be destroyed and wiped away. And when God told Noah that I'd never flood the earth again and destroy it that way, what he did say was I would use fire as a refining tool and fire is coming and I'm going to burn it all up, the heavens and the earth. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, I don't know when God is going to have enough. I don't know when God is going to enact his judgment upon all mankind. I don't know when the world's going to come to an end. This apocalyptic view of how we read Revelation, particularly, or Daniel, or parts of Isaiah. I don't know when that time's going to come. But I will tell you this. If we're busy trying to measure it by our standards, we're missing out. The God that exists outside of time and space, that a day for, for us is like a thousand years for the Lord. And we can't fathom that because none of us live a thousand years. But what I can say is this, is exactly what Peter said in verse, verse 10, uh, the end of verse 9. He, he desires no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And that God is slow to enact his absolute judgment that he says he's going to bring about so that he can clean out all the sinfulness of this world so he can again dwell with mankind. And until he does that, we may think that we're suffering and that God doesn't care about us, but it is a tremendous act of mercy. Because he is slowly asking more people and calling them to come to him. And he wants to fill every room in that house with as many people as he can. And he's slow to come to that place. And we need to thank him for that. But we got work to do if he is slowly waiting to come to that place. Because there are people who do not know him and will not be with him. And that is the charge for us. That as God calls all of us, he uses us to call those who are lost to come because he does not desire that any of them would perish. But look what he says in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. 
and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How should we live in this present age? Righteousness, goodness, holiness, understanding that God has better things for us in the future than what's going on in the present but our present can be a whole lot better if we'll but trust him right now with all that we have. And if we would give up cowardice attitudes and respond to his call, we would see that the things he has for us in the future are absolutely better than what's going on in the present. And he wants to change that for us because what we have right now is not the best of the best. He is making all things new for us which means all things new for us is far better than what we have right now. And so the question would be is, are you satisfied with right now? Please tell me no. John, I'm living my best life. Are you? Really? What's that look like? And tell me all the ways that you tell people about Jesus in your best life. Because I actually believe that if we're living our best life, our best life is a reflection of the holiness of God who has made me new, who has created me a clean heart and renewed my right spirit. And if I'm living my best and I'm doing what God wants me to do, I am just oozing godliness. Are you oozing? That may not be godliness. You may want to get that checked out. Peter basically tells us these three things. We should live expectantly, we should live fearlessly, and we should live assuredly. John, how can I do these things? You should know God's word, and he's saying these things are going to happen. There's been a whole lot of conversation about the second coming and the end and all this other stuff. I got news for you. All this junk has to happen because God said it had to happen. And so, yes, I don't relish going through a difficult time. I don't know if the end is actually near or not. As far as I'm concerned, every day we're one day closer to Jesus coming back. And if that's tomorrow, amen, hallelujah. Soon and very soon, I'm going to see the king. And if it's a year from now or a month from now or 10 years from now or 100 years from now, I can't impact that, but I can impact right now as I follow him, not cowardly, but with boldness and confidence as I approach his throne. And if I'm going to live expectantly, if I'm going to live fearlessly and assuredly, I'm going to trust that whatever God said in his word is happening and will happen. And I can either live in fear of that or I can live in the promise of God saying, I'll be the one who judges. I'll be the one who deals with all the iniquities and all the sins and everybody else. I'll be the one who creates new hearts in people. You be the one who loves me and demonstrates that to everybody else around. You be the one that when the fire comes and the trials and the tribulations come and the difficulties come and the COVID comes and, and the homelessness comes and the joblessness comes, you be the one who does all of those things and you stand up not on the side of all these other, these other, these other things that really impact our lives, but you be on the side of saying God has control of over all of this. And I'm not saying bury your head in the sand. I'm saying trust him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and all your strength. 
Leviticus 26, 12 was a promise that was given to the Levites way early on. And what happened is when they came out of, when they came out of slavery and when they came out of, under the hand of Egypt, they write down these laws and the Levites were the priestly people and they wrote 26, 12 and, 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 and this is what it says, and I will walk among you and I'll be your God and you shall be my people. Are you his people? Let's personalize this. Are you his person? Because it doesn't rub off when you're around good people. You don't suddenly become good. You can't catch goodness and righteousness and holiness like you can COVID, okay? Are you his person? Does he want to walk amongst you? Does he want to dwell with you? Do you really want him around that much? Perhaps one of the greatest rhetorical questions of all time is when God is walking through the garden and Adam and Eve are naked and they're hiding themselves and God says to them, where are you? I'm over here, says Adam. Why are you hiding? Because I'm naked. He told you you were naked. God knew he told him that. God knew why he was hiding. God knew where he was. I think what he was gently trying to remind Adam is, Adam, I never moved. You did. I'm looking for you. I'm calling for you, Adam. The God who makes all things new is calling for each and every one of us to live a life now that reflects the goodness that is coming. And that might mean that we're not experiencing it all right here, but I'm going to tell you something, friends. The only reason... You cannot have a new life now is because you're too busy holding on to the old one. The only reason you cannot have a new life now is because you're busy holding on to the old one. The old is comfortable. It's familiar. It requires little effort. It's lazy, to say the least. The new requires submission, humility, honesty and that's just with yourself we had not even brought God in the conversation create in me a clean heart oh God and renew in me the right spirit I don't like the new normal any much more than the rest of you probably do but I can tell you one thing about it that even in the midst of all of it the same old God is the same old God and I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for that.